0: Want to apologize in advance. I know my voice sounds awful right now. Um, I have taken my Mucinex and I have my black cherry herbal tea with honey. It's kind of awesome tasting. I miss my coffee. Um, no, I'm, I'm gonna. I think I can get through this. We'll see what happens. All right. So um, Ruth, chapter three. Ruth chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind us in just a, a little bit. Uh, if you don't own a Bible of your very own, we have some scattered around the room, the little racks beneath the seats. Uh, and if, you don't, if you don't have one that you can call yours, please take that physical one home. Uh, we believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of important things, but chief, among those important things is that He uses it to reveal Himself Himself to his people. It's what he uses to make himself known. And, and it's through knowing him that he changes who you are, how you see the world, how you interact with everybody and everything in it. And so uh, we, we value the Bible highly around here. And so if you don't have a copy of your own, take that one, and start reading it. I think he'll use it in a big way. Um, so we are halfway through the book of Ruth now. Uh, if you're counting weeks in the series, uh, we are more than halfway. Uh, we, we spent more time on the earlier parts, but we've covered exactly half of the story so far, two of the, th- of the four chapters. Um, if you're not familiar uh, with the book of Ruth, it's a tiny little story uh, sandwiched in between two much larger stories, the, the, the time period of the judges and the time period of the kings. All right? And so uh, in, in, in the scope of... of of the books of the Bible, Ruth is very has a very small footprint, uh, sandwiched between two much larger footprints, um, and so it's often described as the Bible's love story, the biblical rom com, right? And so, um, if you're you know, categorizing it like that, though, it tends to shut down about half of the room. A lot of Y chromosomes just roll their eyes. All right, um, I'm, I'm going to cough a couple times through here. <coughs> Excuse me, all right, and so. We talked about it at length in previous weeks, so we don't have to belabor the point too much. But um, a big reason, I think, that a lot of guys, uh, myself included, tend to zone out uh, when it comes to thinking about and getting excited about the rom-com and the romance story and all those kinds of things, it's not because the topic of romance in and of itself is some kind of uninteresting topic to a lot of guys. It's because modern rom-coms tend to package it in, a, in just gobs and gobs and gobs of cheesiness. All right? uh, the problems aren't real problems, and the solutions aren't real solutions. Um, and, and what we've been saying all throughout this series, though, is that while Ruth is certainly a romance story, it is, it's how you have to categorize it. It is a categorical error to lump Ruth in with what is usually perceived as kind of the cheesy romance movies. And, and the reason for that is that man, Ruth is real, like like really really real. I don't, I don't mean in a, a fictional, non-fictional kind of divide. I, and, and, and to be true, uh, to, to be serious about it, I, I, like Ruth is uh, involving real people in real time and space. It's not, it's not some made-up story. Uh, but what I specifically mean by that is, is instead of fiction, non-fiction, I mean that, that Ruth has real problems and very real solutions. Real pain real sorrow, real anger at God, real struggle to survive, and very, very real redemption. You probably haven't lost all that Naomi has lost, but I have no doubt at all that every one of us in here has, been, has found ourselves in moments where we've been bitter towards God because he took away something that we were banking our future on. Or am I alone in that? Maybe you don't carry the same exemplary patience as, as Ruth does, but I have no doubt at all that all of us have found ourselves in moments where the most loving thing that we could do was continue pressing into the one who is in self-destruction mode. Have you ever been in that moment? Yeah. Ruth is real, very real. It has no room for cheesiness. And last week, Last week we saw the effects of Ruth's humble initiative to get out there and go glean in the barley field. Uh, Boaz takes notice of her. He sets her up for success, and Ruth follows through on what Boaz set up for her. She knocks it out of the park. All right? We're told that she comes back with an ephah of barley. It's like a five-gallon bucket's worth. After we were done last week, Brittany Saboliev came rushing up to the front. He's like, i got to tell you something. All right? she, she and Roman had been growing some oats at their house, and they had worked and worked and worked and worked and worked, and, worked, and they came back with some oats. <laughs> Those of us who get our grain from a bag at a grocery store, we have no idea what kind of work an EFA of barley takes. It's a ton of work. It's an absolute truckload of work. And so we closed out our, our time period last week by, by seeing how Boaz's extravagant favor doesn't just provide materially for Naomi and Ruth. It doesn't just, you know, kind of give them something to eat. We, we saw that it begins to bring something new out of Naomi, too, right? Naomi's going, well, wait a second, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, where did you go? Whose field did you go and glean in? And at the very end of our time, we saw that she also goes, well, wait a second, I forgot to tell you. Boaz is one of our redeemers. One of our redeemers. Redeemers were members of the extended family who could step in and help with financial and legal help, legal issues. And I don't know about you, but that, that seems, I don't know, like a gigantic plot point for when Naomi and Ruth are in a bunch of financial and legal issues, right? Right? Seems like it's going to come up in the story. So you ready to look at that next piece? Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. All right, let's call time out there. All right, so uh, there's, there's a ton going on here in just these little two verses, and we've got to spend our time talking about most of it. Um, the writer of Ruth uh, opens up chapter three with the word then, all right? And so what does the word then mean? Uh, when exactly is this conversation happening? Well, um, we closed out the end of chapter two with Ruth and Naomi having a conversation, all right, uh, and, and like... Like, is, that, is, is it a part of the same conversation? Are we still talking? What's, what's going on here? Um, and There are a small number of people who argue that it is, that it's, that it's an extended conversation. Naomi keeps going here. Uh, the very end of chapter 2, verse 23, um, kind of looks ahead in the story, and, and some people argue that now we're back to the present tense, all right? Um, most people, though, just assume that it's a different, meaning second, conversation that Naomi and Ruth are having sometime later. And a big clue why we assume that is because we're told that Boaz is, quote, winnowing the barley. We talked about beating out the barley grain last week, and, and that means exactly what you think it means, literally beating the stalks of the barley so the grain falls off. I mean, you don't want all the stalks, that's, that's silage that you can give to the cows and give to the pigs, all right? or well, I guess they wouldn't do that in a Jewish context, but give to the cows, that'd be great, all right? All right, but you don't want the stalks, you can't eat that, you can't do anything with it as a person, and so they beat out the grain, literally beat them the heck out of it, and like, so the grain would fall off. All right? And they would do that at the end of each day as they were harvesting. All right? But winnowing is different. It's the process of separating the chaff from the kernel. And so you would continually toss it in the air and let the breeze in the evening kind of carry the lighter chaff away. And you'd be left with the part that you want. You do that at the end of the harvest when you've got a big old pile of grain to deal with. And that means that this is happening, this conversation is happening sometime during the next probably month or two, of Ruth continuing to go out into the fields and glean in Boaz's field. But notice what Naomi says. She says, should I not seek rest for you? Should I not seek rest for you? Are we all on the same page here that Naomi's looking and acting differently than she has so far in the story? Something's gotten into her, right? She's completely changed her tone. <laughs> Excuse me. In the first half of the story, every word out of Naomi's mouth was filled with bitterness, right? Like everything she could say when she had opportunity to say something was filled with bitterness. Even in chapter 1, when she's trying to send uh, Ruth and, and uh, Orpah back home, uh, you know, send the girls home for their own good, her logic is factually accurate in that moment. It's correct in that moment, but it's driven emotionally by her running away from a relationship. Like she doesn't want to be who she knows that they need her to be. So she's darting away from that. But here in chapter 3, we don't see bitterness and self-loathing anymore. That's not in her tone anymore. We don't see her casting blame on God for every bad thing that she can point to. Now, there there appears to be an other-focused desire to serve Ruth buried in her tone. Well, Ruth's assertiveness initiates the actions of chapter 2 it appears that Naomi's assertiveness is about to initiate the actions of chapter 3. They both have it. But what's the deal with rest? What's she talking about? Should I not seek rest for you? Well, I think Naomi finally understands that Ruth has sacrificed so, so much for her, and it's time for Naomi to turn around and do the same. That's what she's talking about, and she's She's going to do that in a way that she is uniquely capable of doing that, acting like a Jewish mother. Jewish mothers are a special breed. Remember Naomi's words back in chapter 1? Um, she tells the girls to return to their mother's house, not their father's house, not their parents' house, but return to their mother's house and seek after a new husband. It's not because daddy wasn't in the picture. It's because moms play an incredibly special role in getting their daughters ready for marriage. Daddies are awesome, but daddies can't do that. They just, they just can't do that. Um, uh, whether it's matchmaker, instructor, sounding board and confidant, moms are a special, special thing. And there's a whole bunch of, like, um, like Ruth was a, a widow, we know. She had been married to Malin for like 10 years before he died. And so there's a lot that Ruth already knows, we, we get that. Ruth's got some things locked down. She understands how the world works, but but Naomi can play her role. She can do what she's she's able to do, and unlike in chapter 1, what we see now is that she's ready to step up into that responsibility. Where she ran away from it before, now, now she wants to press in. Naomi understands that in the world that they live in, It doesn't matter what kind of work ethic that Ruth has. Real rest will not come to Ruth by eking out a subsistence each harvest season. It will not come by needing a landowner to be more generous than he is required to be. Naomi understands that real rest will come through marriage. And I'm fully aware that that's the kind of claim that would get a man run out of town these days. Right? Like you're not allowed to say things like that anymore. But it's wrong to hear that as an indictment against Ruth's work ethic. It's not an indictment against Ruth's ability to work hard and do everything she possibly can. We've already clearly seen that not only can she, but she will. She will do. That's not the issue here. No, the rest that Naomi wants for Ruth is more like a finish line. A finish line. A happily ever after that she can call her very own, right? With a man who truly sees her and cares about her deeply. It's a happily ever after that carries with it the regular rhythms of daily life and the prospect of children and with the full integration of a foreign woman into a Hebrew town, into Hebrew culture and community. See, Naomi wants to give Ruth a very real home with a very real future, and she knows exactly how to get Ruth from point A to point B. She knows the steps involved. Ruth has dug in, clung to, made sacrifices for, and willingly emptied herself of incredible opportunities that were on the table for her, all so that she could serve someone else she loved. And now, now Naomi says, I'm going to do that for you. I'm here for it. Let's go. I'm going to do everything I can to get that for you. And this Jewish mom knows exactly how to get there. Despite what our culture may misunderstand and I think even intentionally sometimes misdefine about marriage, what God has designed it to be is a holy rest. A holy rest. And, and that doesn't mean that there's no work involved. Of course there is, but it's not striving either. It's not It's not a pendulum swing here. The the very things about Ruth's character that enable her to, to, to kind of handle her business while she's stay, still single, those are the exact things that are about to make Ruth an incredible wife. Naomi knows this. Ruth knows this. And in chapter 3, we, we see Naomi step up with a plan to get Ruth there. But it's not just some utilitarian task either. Uh, do, you, do you see the joy and anticipation in Naomi's tone here? Um, th- this is the first thing we've seen Naomi be excited about since her son's died. It's a good day for Naomi. Uh, the extravagant... <laughs> excuse me, the extravagant favor of Boaz has lifted Naomi beyond just a trust in future provision. It has also drawn her out of her self-loathing and back into the normal mechanisms of Jewish motherhood. It's given her all of these things. These are are things that she would have kind of naturally looked forward to if she had been the mother of some daughters. (coughs) Excuse me. She ended up being a boy's mom instead. Uh, It's an equal blessing, but it's a different ballgame, right? Like, boy moms are different than girl moms, all right? Um, But you could argue here that Naomi now gets to, like, actually enjoy something that she otherwise missed out on, and she seems a little giddy about it. Ruth, I got a plan. Let's go, Ruth. I got got an idea. Let's do it. Oh, what? joys, someone else's unmerited favor is brought on this household. Boaz's generosity affects far more than whether or not their bellies are full. He's breathing hope and joy and anticipation into this family. It's beginning to draw good things out of Naomi, and it's about to draw some really good things out of Ruth as as well. So, so Boaz is expected to be in a certain place. He's expected to be down at the threshing floor, right? So whether all the landowners you know, spent all their time down there or they had some kind of shift system worked out, we, we don't really know. Uh, we can assume that Boaz's livelihood is tied up in that giant pile of grain, right? So he's probably not going too far. Um, but whatever the reason that Boaz is there, Naomi expects Boaz to be there at a very specific time, and it's time to hatch a plan, right? And so we see that plan start to play out in verse 3. I'm going to cough again. I feel great, yeah, all right, all right, chapter 3, verse 3, Naomi tells Ruth this, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. All right, Ruth, it's time to take a bath, woo, I probably shouldn't woo, all right, Naomi instructs Ruth to kind of go get all dolled up and go down to the threshing floor. That's the instruction. Right? However, but but this is not this is not just a bath for hygiene's sake. It's not just a bath for hygiene's sake. There's a turn here in how Ruth is presenting herself to others. However long it's been since Malin has died, and, and remember, it hasn't been all that long. It's like maybe a few months. It hasn't been that long. It means that Ruth has probably been wearing all this time specific clothes that publicly identify her as a widow in mourning. Several times throughout the Old Testament, we see this, that specific mourning clothes were a, a thing that, that, that people wore, whether it was a garment made out of sackcloth or some other kind of rent ma- material. And, and we have some kind of visual cues for, for mourning in our own culture today. And, and like the death of Queen Elizabeth actually helped to kind of illustrate a lot of that for us. Like BBC reporters all switched to black ties, right? Uh, A lot of sports teams in the UK put on uh, black armbands for a couple of weeks. So it's a visual cue that an individual or even an entire nation is in a season or a period of mourning. And the Old Testament has the same kind of stuff. Same stuff, all right? And so we see morning garments uh, in the story of Tamar. I uh, remember that not at all kid-friendly uh, story between her and Judah that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Tamar takes off the morning clothes and then does what she does, disguises herself, and then afterwards she puts the morning clothes back on. That's how the story works in Leviticus ten. We see that God explicitly forbade Aaron and his other sons from showing any signs of mourning, clothes or otherwise, uh, when his other sons uh, were morons and uh, and offered unauthorized sacrifice and God had to kill them. God told Aaron, no, no, don't show any mourning because that will set the wrong tone. We also, a couple of times in the Old Testament, get to see people coming out of a season of mourning. Our best example of that is 2 Samuel 12. When King David is mourning the death of his firstborn son with Bathsheba. If you're not familiar with the story, the child is stillborn. And we're told that David, quote, "...arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then he went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate." So there's a period of mourning, everybody else around that person has visual cues to understand what's going on, but then after a little while, it's, it's time to move on, right? And what's the first thing you do when it's time to move on? You change the visual cues. In our context, it's to go back to wearing the colorful ties and take off the black armband. In Israel's context, you take a bath, you change your clothes, you anoint your head with oil, and you get back out there to the normal rhythms of life. That's what you do. That's exactly what we see in Naomi's instructions here to Ruth. My daughter, I want rest for you. Go take a bath. My daughter, I want rest for you. It's time to take the next step and move on. Naomi instructs Ruth to go and bathe, not because she hadn't bathed in all this time, but because she's going to present herself to a suitor. It's time to get prettied up. Unless you're a single guy, everybody in the room understands just how much goes into a girl's bath time when it's time to take the feel pretty bath. It's a ridiculous affair. The bathtub at our house is full of bathing products. You want to guess what percentage of them belong to me? It's a very small percentage. I counted this morning. Every once in a while, I'll run a bath for Katie. It's not because I'm trying to be sweet. It's because I'm secretly trying to put twice as much bubble bath in there, so we'll run out. (laughs) Oh, no, we're all out of Japanese cherry blossom. Ah. All right. That's okay. She'll buy more tomorrow. All right. Ruth, take a bath. Take a bath. Anoint your head with the perfumed oil. Put on a cloak because it'll be cold outside. I'm going to send you down to the threshing floor. But don't make yourself known until everybody's feasted and had their fill, had their drink. So what's that about? Well, harvest time in a farming town is a big old deal. It's a big old deal today. It was a bigger deal back then. And it's an even bigger deal when you just came out of a famine. This is a time to celebrate. Money's flowing, flowing. Bellies are full. Everybody's having a big old time. It's a very happy day in Bethlehem. So there'd be feasting each night. Everybody's having a good time with it. And look at verse four. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. All right, so welcome to the, wait, what did she just say moment in the book of Ruth? Um, it's kind of awkward here. Ruth, Naomi gives Ruth incredibly specific instructions, and it's the kind of thing that you've got to think a lot about, or else you're going to go down a weird place. Um, so she's told to wait until everybody has filled their bellies, drank their alcohol, and gone off to bed. She's to watch carefully where Boaz lays down, sneak in while it's dark, uncover his feet, and then lay down herself. What do we do with that? That's weird. Right? We're all on the same page as that. that's weird. Well, there are a number of people, especially in recent history, a large number of people who point to this and argue that what's going on here is sexual in nature. And truthfully, they have a little bit of an argument. They can point to some things. The Hebrew can absolutely be translated in that kind of euphemistic way. There are occasions in the Hebrew where a word for foot probably means something other than foot. We can point to those. Now, it's not the same word that's used here in the book of Ruth. It's a different word for foot. But we can point to those moments. On top of that, in the book of Hosea, in a different, but not all that different, time period in Israel's history, it's a few hundred years later, but still just as sinful, Hosea tells us that prostitutes showing up at the threshing floor was totally a thing that happened. In fact, it was a regular thing that happened. So there is an argument for this being some kind of euphemism. However, it doesn't have to be. It's it's weird that, it, that we would think that it absolutely must be. M- maybe it just literally means his feet. And the chief reason why we lean in that direction is because, well, that's exactly the kind of innocent actions that we've come to expect from Ruth all throughout this story so far. Like over and over and over, again, yes, audacity and resolve. The girl has that in spades, but she also has incredible restraint and a humble commitment to show honor to others even when she doesn't have to. And so to assume euphemism here not only, not only tries to force a, what I think is a modern, overly sexualized view of the world onto this story, but it also completely ignores pretty much everything we've learned about Ruth's character so far. Doesn't fit the flow of the narrative at all. And this is an example of something that I think is, I don't, I don't know if it's increasing or not, but at least it's pretty prevalent. I think it's a problem in a lot of pulpits today. Sometimes preachers are more interested in, in trying to say something provocative about a text than just saying what the text says. Whether it's, you know, they're trying to be edgy or grow their platform, or, or maybe they think it's their job to make sure that the Bible seems appealing and, you know, relevant to people, interesting to people. I, I don't know. But what I do know is that rushing immediately to the explanation that causes people to sit up on their seats, that that might tell us something more about our own heart that we're not proud of. That's a preacher problem. What does that have to do with you? Well, like in all things, if God has called you to be the church, whether it's this place or some other place, it's your job to watch out for those kinds of things. The Bible's got plenty of its own edgy moments. We don't have to create them. And whether that's here or anywhere else, churches everywhere, I think, would be a whole lot healthier if the people that make up those church bodies stop platforming guys that try to force the false edginess. So hold me accountable to that. If God's called you somewhere else, hold them accountable to that. God doesn't need a forced edginess. He's edgy when he wants to be. Okay, 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 yeah, well, sure, sure, okay let's say what's going on here is really just the the super boring, you know, totally not salacious uncovering of feet. Why? Right? For the sake of argument, let's say that Naomi's instructions is just, just only face value. There's nothing going on here. It's just this weird instruction to pull the cover back off of his feet and let his feet get cold. Like, why why would Ruth need to go under the cover of night and have this meeting secretly? And why does she need to uncover anything at all? What do we do with that? Well, here's the prevailing theory. All this time that Ruth has been kind of gleaning in the fields, however long it's been, there's not a lot of real opportunity for her and Boaz to have a define the relationship kind of conversation. All right? There's no DTR here. Uh, By by meeting him on the threshing floor in the middle of the night, Ruth will finally get that opportunity to have a one-on-one conversation. And she'll get that opportunity in an environment that doesn't entrap Boaz into any specific uh, decision. And what's a great way to ensure that that conversation happens in the very middle of the night when no one else is listening on? You do something that will cause Boaz to wake up in the middle of the night. You make his feet cold. We're allowed to call this a really crazy plan. What it's not is a manipulative plan. Those are two different things. Naomi's got a little bit of a crazy streak, all right? We we like that about her. She shows a, a keen savviness here. She's instructing Ruth to work a little bit of an angle, but that does not mean that she's instructing Ruth to go do something sinful. There's a line there. And nothing about what we know about Naomi. and especially Ruth, who cause us to believe that Ruth is willing to cross that line. In fact, we can even go a step beyond that. Uh, Naomi explicitly shows her trust that Boaz will do what is right by closing her instructions saying, he will tell you what to do. He will tell you what to do. Naomi is full of confidence that Ruth will be okay. She's sending her kind of to a uh, not-so-safe place, uh, but she's she's sure that everything will be on the level. Ruth, take a bath, put on the perfumed oil, uh, get his attention in private, and then Boaz will take it from there. He'll handle it. Well, it's so easy to overlook. Man, I really love, absolutely adore Ruth's response in verse 5. And she replied... All that you say, I will do. Over and over and over and over again, church. Resolve and humility. I'm, I'm becoming a big old fan of Ruth. I don't know about you. Anybody else? I picked on her earlier for her fancy bathtub products, but honestly, resolve and humility are two of the pile of things that I really love about my wife, Katie. She's got those in spades, too. Boaz's extravagant favor does not create these character traits in Ruth, but it sure does create an incredible platform for them to shine. Doesn't it? Husbands, whatever is Christ-like in your wife, you create the same platforms for that to be shown when you act in Christ-like ways towards her. Show her off. There's a lot to love and celebrate about Ruth. We're We're gonna hold off until next week to to look at boaz's reaction but i think he's gonna like what he sees i think he's gonna be very interested and while the physical is included in that uh, it's by no means limited to that not at all but what do we do with this stuff like how can we respond to to god's word this morning well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, our response is the same as it is every single week. We, we repent of sin and we lean into what God is revealing about himself in the text. And this week, I think he's showing us that he is working and redeeming far more than just the problems we see in front of us at the given moment. Like, do we, do we, actually, do we actually believe that that's true? Like, we, we kind of have mental assent that that's true, but we don't often trust that that's true. And that's true both when he chooses to fix the problem we're looking at and when he chooses not to fix the problem we're looking at. So our response this week is probably needs to take the shape of a celebration and a, and a thankfulness to the one who sees all the angles and is pulling all the strings and putting all the pieces in place long before we're even aware of what all the pieces are. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. That's a it's a time that we set aside to give opportunity to, you know, to, to translate that heart response into some kind, something more tangible. But, but what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus? What about you? How can you respond? By meeting Jesus. It's as simple as that. The Bible teaches that all people, by default, are separated relationally from God because of our sin, that we are owed the just and right punishment for sin, death. The Bible also teaches that it is while we were still sinners that Christ died for the ungodly, the eternal Son of God. He put on flesh and He dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living and He died on the cross as an innocent sacrifice in our place to make full and final payment for our sin. And He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of His perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now As the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you in this moment to respond to him in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And You can do that today. I'd love to be helpful to you. I'm going to be down here while we sing. We can talk if you want to talk. Maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by formally joining our church family or maybe that's by uh, being obedient to Christ. Jesus' command to be baptized, or maybe it's time to publicly say yes to some calling He's placed on your heart to take the gospel far away from here. I don't know. Whatever it is, we want to be the kind of church that helps you uh, walk those pathways He's calling you to walk. I'd love to be helpful. But whoever you are, and however God's Word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you're good to us. Thank you for the Scriptures. Thank you for the book of Ruth. Thank you for a humble resolve and even a crazy plan. Thank you for grace that not only fills bellies but draws us out of self-loathing and out of mourning. Thank you for being the kind of God who would send redeemers that redeem eternally and even the little things right now. Thank you for getting my voice all the way through this morning. Father, help us respond well. God, for those here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known this morning? Would you draw people into your kingdom today? Make yourself known. Open eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to know you. Let's celebrate that together. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.